a solemn covenant with God. And it seems like for whatever reason, and I can't tell you that because I didn't write the Bible, I just try and teach it without messing it up. So um, God's got a message for the church lately that's like, it's time to get focused. It's time to remember who God is and make sure that he has the right place in our lives. And so tonight, there's a couple things I would ask you. Are you willing to put on paper, would you be willing to put on paper, uh, what you believe to be true about God, what you believe you want to do for God, uh, the things that are important to you in your walk with the Lord. Uh, and if you'd put them on paper, do you really mean it? If you really mean it, would you sign it? Because what you sign matters. And I can give you some very simple examples of those things. Uh, you go in and you take out a loan for a car, for a house, or something like that. Um, what's in that document actually matters. And it is not a binding agreement until both parties sign it. It has to be signed by the bank. It has to be signed by you. In this case, God's already signed his part of the agreement. It's called the Bible. He's authored it by the Holy Spirit. It's in your hands. He tells us in it what he expects of us, how we're to live our lives. Uh, the question is, will we sign it? and live by it, and do it. And as we saw last time, as the Jewish people are now in this full-blown revival, they're back in their, in their holy city, they are sitting there worshiping the Lord, they're engaging in this uh, tremendous worship service. Um, all of a sudden, the word that they're reading becomes a lot more alive to them. And they're realizing, hey, you know, there's been a time in our lives, a, a period in this case of almost 160 years, that they were not doing what God wanted them to do. And consequently, that was the reason that they went off to captivity in Babylon. They, the Lord had spoken. He told them what he expected of them. He was very clear when they entered the land what, what their responsibility was. And, and as we've been on Sundays looking at uh, a, a part of Scripture that is very direct, I think the Lord is desiring for us to kind of cut out the fat, to kind of slice off the stuff that doesn't matter out of our lives and really get serious about our walks with the Lord because it's not getting easier to be a Christian in this world. It is getting more difficult day by day to stand for and to proclaim clearly what God's desire and God's design is for us as Christians. Matter of fact, it, it is rapidly getting to the place that it's going to become, I believe, at some point in time, and people can disagree all they want, but I have been around long enough and been in ministry long enough to tell you that what exists today I never thought would happen. I simply never thought we'd get to the place to where you know, we'd be debating whether it's wrong to pray at a football game, but it's okay to pass out birth control at the same football game. I never thought that we'd reach that place to where you as parents would lose the ability uh, to, to, in essence, input into your own children's lives what you believe are the right uh, grasps of morality and that somehow the state needs to intervene in that. And this is a fault of the, of the body of Christ, of Christians not living out their faith in the public square. 
We proclaim it here. Uh, we teach and learn the word. And again, please remember, I'm not pointing at you directly. Those of you that are gathered here, I'm talking about the church in general. But the church in general hasn't made a solemn covenant with God. What the church has done is, eh, that's kind of a bunch of nice suggestions. And if I feel like it on Tuesday, I might actually do some of those things. Um, from God's perspective, that's not what he wants. He's a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he's jealous for you. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for his church, his bride. And he doesn't want his bride defiled uh, on the way to the wedding. And that's where we're headed. Amen? We are as a church, the bride of Christ, and we're headed to a wedding one day. It's going to be glorious in heaven. And so metaphorically speaking, we're supposed to be taking care of ourselves and acting appropriately right now because we're betrothed. We belong to the Lord Jesus. We're, we're supposed to be as he would want us to be. And you can look at it from that concept, if you will, and from that construct. You know, one of the quickest ways to end a marriage is to defile it, amen, before it ever gets off the ground. You know, all of a sudden those marriage vows don't mean much when, when the bride or the groom has so defiled themselves. Maybe they've actually been unfaithful prior to marriage and it gets back to the the other half of the wedding party. It's not a good thing. And the Lord is jealous for us that way. And so this God-sent revival brings this lasting change in people's lives, and they're willing to put it on paper. Notice verse 38 of chapter 9, And now because of all of this, we're making an agreement in writing. They want to memorialize it. And I don't know how many of you journal or write or do any of those kinds of things. I'm constantly writing. And so I have a journal of the things that that I do virtually every day. I have tens of thousands of pages of notes. I mean, it literally is that many. And I can look back and see where I was, and I date everything. So I can tell you when I taught a message and studied for it, and I can look back and read what I was thinking and everything else. I don't know how many of you do that. Your Bible should be a journal. There should be notes in there. If your Bible's not marked up, it, it's not a talisman. God does not mind if you write in the margins of your Bible, okay? This is not a lucky rabbit's foot. This is the living, breathing Word of God, and for you to put notes in the margins means that you're actually paying attention, that you really care about what it says. A well-worn Bible, a well-marked-up Bible if you don't have to replace them every once in a while because you've written too many notes in them, uh, you might want to think about your habits of studying God's Word. And I'm not saying that if you don't, you're in sin. I'm simply saying, if you look at my Bible, it's technicolor. And not because it came that way. It's like, I can't even read some of the pages in it. It's just like God shows me something. I write it down. And so it, in effect, becomes a covenant between me and God. It's like, God, you showed me that. That's my responsibility. I need to keep my part of that deal. You spoke that truth into my life. I want to live that way now. And so in the world we write agreements and we sign them. And so verse 1 here in chapter 10 says, in light of verse 38 in chapter 9, remember there was no chapter and verse designations in the original writing. This whole book was in essence a single story without punctuation in it. You would just simply read from one to the other what we call chapters. And now when... These, who are those 
who placed their seal on the document. In other words, now they said, we wrote it, now we're going to sign it. We want to make sure everybody, and the word that's used there for signature, if you have signature, maybe in your Bible it says seal. Seal is actually the correct term. They took out their signet ring. They took their family seal, their family crest. They took a wax stick, more than likely, or perhaps a, a clay bula. And they said 84 of them, by the way. That's how many names are listed in that list that we're not going to read again tonight. <laughs> so the first 27 verses, if you have a thing for Hebrew and you want to learn some Hebrew names, you go right ahead. But in those first 27 verses, there's 84 names. And 84 people took this covenant oath and they said, I want everybody to know what it is that I heard, what I believe, and what I'm going to do, what is my part. And they took out their signet rings and they said, this is me. I'm in. Are you in? Or is your relationship with the Lord hollow? Is it shallow? Is it something that you have here at church, but not so much when you get to work. Covenant keeping brings about real reforms. Our declarations of God should lead to manifestations in our lives. In other words, that old doctrine and duty thing. Yeah? It should bring about real change. We shouldn't be the same people. When you've had an encounter with the true and the living God, there is supposed to be a change in your life. And if there isn't, we need to ask some serious questions. And if there is, it needs to become very real and people should be able to see it. They should be able to look on your life and say, you know what? Bought it. Bought the hat, the t-shirt, the pen, the mug. Got all the stuff. And it's all sitting there on the counter. You know, it's kind of like those people, you don't even want to go to their houses because they have so much memorabilia around. And you look around, it's like, well, where'd you get that? Oh, that was a spoon when I went to the, you know, the world's largest ball of twine. And the uh, giant rubber band museum. And, you know, they have all this. When I grew up, everybody did two things. If you went anywhere, you got a sticker. It went on the back of your station wagon. So every national park, you had like, you couldn't see out of the glass. It was just like wherever you went, you did that. And you bought a spoon. And everybody had a spoon rack. And in that spoon rack, oh, there's, you know, there's Yosemite and there's Sequoia and there's Kings Canyon. And you hang it on your wall. And this is what's important in your family. And so you can look at that and you go, man, what you invest your time, your talent, your treasures, and what you display is what, you're, what really matters to you. And so tonight, a solemn covenant with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the patience of your people with me. And, Lord, the, the things that, Lord, I'm inadequate in, I just thank you that you're good and your mercies are new every morning. And pray that as we study your word tonight, God, help me to not mess it up. Lord, help us to hear from heaven. Help us to remember the goodness of our God. Help us to count all things loss for the excellency of Christ Jesus, of knowing you, Lord. Help us to invest all that we have, Lord, in this covenant-making with you. Lord, we recognize that we're children of grace, but grace is a serious thing. It's not cheap. Jesus, you, you bled and died for that grace.
Father God, you gave up your only son for that grace. And so, Lord, help us to be serious about our faith. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins with verse 1 saying, these are the guys that signed it. You know, it's rather like we can look back on our history and you look back at the the Declaration of Independence specifically. And if you look at the end of it, uh, it says there for the support, the Declaration, uh, firm reliance upon the divine protection and divine providence, we mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. When you make those types of promises, when those... 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence signed that document. They were signing a death warrant with England. The moment the pen touched paper with their name, they were declaring war against the largest empire in the world at the time. They were saying, King George, these are the things we have a grievance with you. We're going to separate from you. It's become very, very important to us that we stand for the things that we believe we stand for. And so we're going to pledge with our lives, with our honor, and with our sacred, with our fortune, all of these things which we hold dear as divinely given to us by God. We're going to invest everything. Now, I happen to believe that that really was a, a, an oath by largely Christians. We can look back at the history of most of those signers and say with relative certainty that 52 out of the 55 at least were deists. They believed in a God, and a vast majority of them were Bible-believing Christians who professed faith in Jesus Christ. And so if they could do something like that for the founding of the country, what should be our response to what we declare about God? What what are we going to do with what God's done for us is another way to look at it. And we could go through a long list of people who have put pen to ink and it's cost them their lives. And then put that ink on paper and, and they forfeited everything for it. And so it is a different matter when you sign something. You say, you know what, this is what I believe. It was an interesting thing, and I will share with you today, just very briefly, I had, an, I had a thing happen today. I can tell you one of the drawbacks and one of the wonders of modern technology. We record everything here. So every message, all those kinds of things. Every once in a while, Pastor Jeff has to go, well, that was kind of dumb of me to say. Not quite sure what I was thinking there, but blame it on me. But there's also the flip side. When somebody says, oh, well, you teach this or you believe that or you said this or you said that. When you can pull up that recording and say, you know what? That's not what I said. And I'm so sure of that. Here it is. Would you like a copy? It's the same thing that these guys are doing. Somebody could have pulled up what they agreed to and said, Didn't you agree to these things? Didn't you swear before God that this was going to happen? And then here's this list of things that now become uh, the covenant that they're going to keep. And notice what they are. Uh, The first one is a covenant to avoid an unequaled yoke in marriage. How many people today have 
not made this covenant with God and lived long enough to regret it. Because bottom line is, the Jewish people were told, not because other people were inferior from a human standpoint, but because the nations that they were surrounded by, their Gentile neighbors, were degenerate, they were immoral, they were idolatrous, and they sacrificed their children to the god Molech. And so God says to them, I don't want you to intermarry with them, because when you do, your house is going to be divided, because over here you're going to serve Yahweh, Lord of hosts, and they're going to want to fry your kids in the arms of Molech as they stoke the fires. And so God here brings to attention for us, verse 30, that we would not part of this covenant they signed after naming all of the names. He says in verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had noticed this separated themselves or been sanctified is another way to look at that. They had been separated out from the world, from the peoples of the lands, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. There it is. We're not bound by the Mosaic law anymore, but this is still the instruction manual. This is where we get our truth. This still applies to our lives. It still counts. And so that's the oath that they're signing. And then they go to describe what it is that they're actually going to commit to, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do. Notice, not just hear about, not just memorize, because there's a lot of people who know what God's word says, but they don't do what comes next, which is to do it and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. So everything that God had said, God wanted them to do and be, they said yes and amen. And it's very interesting to me that the first component part is a covenant to avoid an unequaled yoke in marriage. Because I can tell you there are very few things that will cause people to compromise worse than being unequally yoked in marriage. Because you will have to make a choice between your spouse and God. And that is a tough choice to make. That is a hard, hard, hard road to walk. And in fact, if you're really serious about your walk with the Lord, much of the time it becomes impossible. Because there's not a single Lord in the house. There's not a single headship in the house. How can two walk together lest they be agreed, the prophet Malachi said. And the answer is you can't. You see, you have in this case that they would not give their daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, in other words, the Gentiles, nor their daughters for our sons. In other words, they said, you know what? We're going to start at home. The message is don't be yoked to the world in any way, shape, or form. And it starts at home. And there's no other way to, to do it, family of God. Because those pagan practices... They eventually creep into the house. How many spouses end up in, in, a, in a place to where they're engaging in behaviors they would never have engaged in because their spouse does because their spouse is not saved? How many people end up in situations morally, ethically, 
perhaps in their living situation to where they're now compromised into doing the things the way their spouse wants it, or they get a divorce. God's serious about this. And in fact, he's so serious that by the time Paul would write the second letter to the church at Corinth, he would say there in the sixth chapter, in the 14th verse, he said, don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, who is another word for the devil? What believer has common things with an unbeliever? We're supposed to be separate. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, Paul would say. I will dwell with them. I will walk with them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. God is jealous. And so the first part of this covenant was to make sure you're not unequally yoked to the world, especially in marriage. I, I take some heat at times for my stance on dating. I'm going to tell you why I take that stance. Because dating that's not leading to marriage is messing with fire. It's not harmless behavior. And anybody that says it is hasn't spent as much time around kids as I have. It's not harmless behavior. And as parents as people who have direct impact in the lives of children, we have no business encouraging our kids to date non-believers especially. You are asking for trouble. It doesn't mean that those kids aren't worthy of the salvation that God offers, but we are concerned with one thing first as the body of Christ, and that is our relationship with the Lord. And if we don't make that first, And if we will not stand for it in those types of things, when the other things come, you will not be able to stand. You'll be compromised. And so it's not harmless fun. It isn't something that we should just passively sit by and go, well, you know, maybe he's a pre-Christian. Maybe she's a pre-Christian. You know, maybe it's going to work out okay. Who knows what God will do? I cannot tell you how many excuses I've heard for denying the plain teaching of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because that whole aspect of life is supposed to point to marriage. It's not a game that we play with other people's emotions. It's not practice for marriage. Dating should be leading towards marriage. And if it's not leading towards marriage, then you're playing with fire. And if you're dating someone who's not a Christian and you are saved and you have claimed the name of Christ, you are in especially grave danger. Because ultimately, that person will have to make the choice between standing for God and righteousness. You know what? No, I will not sleep with you before we're married. Because my Bible says that's called fornication and it's not good. Yeah, but everybody else is doing it. You know that the average age that someone loses their virginity now is less than 16? I mean, come on, you're, you're 16 and a half. Family of God, this is the reality of what God's saying here. You can disagree with me all you want, but the statistics prove that I am right and that the Bible is right. 
and that those that mess around in this arena do not benefit from it. It is a detriment to their person. So be careful. What you say and what you approve of. A second thing, a second part of this covenant to remember the Sabbath. And it's not talking about the Sabbath as in Saturday like Seventh-day Adventism speaks of. But as a Sabbath as in rest before the Lord. And if ever we needed to revive the, the covenant of the Sabbath, it's now in our busy world. I can't tell you how many people are too busy to rest. I've been part of that club. I can't tell you how many people are too busy to make it to church because they don't have time. I can't tell you how many people are too busy to even seek the face of the Lord. They can't even, they don't have time to pray. They don't have time to read their Bible. They don't have time to be a a godly parent or a godly spouse. They are so pressed for time, they have not kept that portion of their life before the Lord. Notice what it says. And as for the peoples of the land who bring wares or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt, as it says there in verse 31. Why does it say that? Because God doesn't want us worshiping stuff. God does not want us worshiping stuff. It's that simple. And they said, you know what? We're going to remember the Lord before we remember what's in our bank account. We're going to, re- we're going to put the Lord first, not gain first. And again, I'm not trying to make a legalistic demand on anyone and say, well, if you work on Sunday, you're in sin. I'm not saying that at all. So if that's what you got out of it, erase it from your brain. But what I am saying is, if you're too busy to go to church, if you're too busy making money to spend time with Jesus, if your number one goal has, has become this overbearing sense that life is life needs to be a matter of dollars and cents, then you, you need to seriously think about this covenant that these folks made. As they sought revival in their lives, they said, you know what, we're going to give God some time. Because God needs time to speak into our lives. I am a huge advocate of taking vacation. Why? Because we need to decompress. We need to get an opportunity. You know what, God is good. And in the hurry, and I'm not saying you need to spend all your countless time, talent, and treasure in doing that endeavor either, but it is, it is that we do need to say to the Lord, you know what, I want to hear from God. The reason I stand here before you tonight, only pastoring this church and not doing all the other crazy things that I used to do, and because I took time, Connie and I went away and said, you know what, Lord, we need to hear from you. Because right now we're just hearing from everything but you. And it's all good stuff. It's all busy things. It's all ministry stuff. It's all God things even. But you can get so busy caught up in the God things that you don't give God time. Be careful. God doesn't need us. He wants us. And there's a big difference between those two things. He wants us. He doesn't need us. The world doesn't revolve around us. We need to take time to honor the Lord. We're not just simply left to our own feeble efforts. The Lord's going to take care of the rest of the world. He's held the world and the universe together all of these years. I think he can do it without us, okay? 
His sovereign providential care is never lacking. You know, one of the things that I stress over because I'm that type of person is how all the little details are going to get done. And I've had to learn the hard way. That's God's business. This is his church. We are his people. And he needs to take care of those things. It doesn't mean I don't do my part, but it does mean that I want to hear from him rather than just do stuff for him. I'd rather hear his voice than watch myself sweat. Better to give ten people something to do than take on the work of ten people. We need to rest and give God some time. A third thing, and this is important. Notice what it says in verse 32 to 34. It's a covenant to take care of God's house. And so we also placed ourselves under the obligation. And notice they're so concerned with this that they use words like obligation or covenant, command. Saying, you know what? We're going to do this. We're not going to talk about it anymore. When it's all said and done, most of the time more is said than done. And this was, a, this was a group of people who said, you know what, we're not going to talk about it anymore. We're going to do it. And so we placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the burnt offering, for the Sabbaths, the new moons. Remember, this was written during times when uh, the Jewish religion was the only monotheistic religion on earth. Okay? Islam didn't come around until... Uh, 636 A.D. So this is the only group of people on the entire planet who worship exactly one God. And they believe that that one God was responsible for everything. And so the house of worship, which in that case was the temple or the tabernacle as they wandered in the wilderness, was very important because it's where they met the Lord. And in our day and time, that place is this church for this group of people. It's wherever God's people meet. And so they made a covenant. You know what? Church is important. God's house is important. It matters. We need to take care of it. I'll give you a little secret. Every once in a while, I get a little tweaked at at how people just don't want to take care of God's house. You know, they lose their cup of coffee, they walk out the door, <laughs> grab their thing of lemonade and fling it at the wall. It's like, well, somebody else will get that. And it's just kind of a sign. It's like, does God matter? Because if God matters, God's house should matter. Taking care of the things that are his. I will tell you one of the things that grieves me as a pastor. We've been blessed with a lot of stuff. I can't tell you how many people steal that stuff. You would think in God's house that it would be pretty safe. But I can't tell you how many times we've bought food for the food ministry or bought something for a specific thing or bought things like tables and chairs and televisions and stereo speakers and other stuff and come in and find out that they're missing because somebody decided that they wanted to help themselves to it. Family of God, it's God's stuff. It's God's house. And we need to take care of God's stuff and God's house. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to Jeff. It doesn't really belong to the board of trustees either. It's God's stuff. And so they said, for the appointed times, the holy things, for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel. I went in one Sunday morning, and you know, we do communion at least once a month here. I went in, and we keep grape juice and all those kind of things. It's all gone. 
It's like it was for communion. Somebody just says, oh, I like grape juice. It's what they're saying, you know. Some of those things are set aside for very specific purposes. We need to take care of God's stuff. For all the work in the house of our God. Well, we got snowblowers and ladders and painting stuff. It's all His. It belongs to Him. We need to take care of it. I don't know how many ladders God's going to give us. We need to take care of the three that we have. You know? It's a pretty simple concept, really. And likewise, it says we cast lots. I'm not encouraging you go out and get lots or cast die or, you know, any of those types of things. But this is what they did then. There was the ermum and the thumum, and they would put them together, and it was kind of like a yes or no for God, from God. And so they would throw those down, and they go, oh, God said okay. So they cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests. Basically, they decide, okay, you get the wood, and we're going to go find the grape juice. And the Levites and the people, so that they might bring it into the house of our God, according to their father's households, and they fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord. For it is written, this is a law. And so they took care of God's stuff, God's house, and whatever there was need of, they signed up. They were on the list. This is one of those areas that I think every church can grow some in, including this one. We're to serve the Lord. We're to give of our time, of our talents, the things that we can do. And again, it's not to put a guilt trip on anybody. But these guys said part of this covenant was, Lord, we want your house to be a place where people know that they can meet you. And so they gave themselves to that endeavor. A fourth thing, verses 35 to 37, a covenant that everything belonged to God. Isn't it weird how we get attached to stuff? Now, hopefully I just communicated partially this truth to you. Because those chairs you're sitting in right now, those are God's chairs. That car you drove here in, that's God's car. The house that you're going to lay your head down in, that bed that you'll lay on, God's bed, God's house. Everything, the earth and the fullness of it belongs to the Lord. You have simply been given stewardship of it, but it belongs to God. It's not yours. It never was. Belongs to him. Now, praise the Lord. He's not sitting there. You don't come in every morning into your living room or whatever, and God's sitting there with a checklist. Okay, you've got three chairs. Yeah. You know, he doesn't do that. He freely blesses us with those possessions, if you will, so that we can use those things for our enjoyment, for his glory, all of it, because he wants to bless you. He is a blessing God. Don't forget that. But it's still his. And the reason this is important is because if we remember it's his and not ours, then he can still do with it as he pleases. And I can tell you, having been in the ministry a very long time, that the national average is actually very true. And that is about 10% of the people that attend church provide for the other 90%. Because they're stingy with their stuff. It's the same people that give up cars and everything else for the work of the Lord. And, and it's because we claim ownership of it. Well, it's mine. Family of God, if you've got 
whatever of anything. You've got two cars, you've got two houses, whatever. If God wants you to have a third one, he can give you one. He's a big God. But when he asks us to do something, if we see it as ours, we won't take our little grungy mitts off of it. And so they say, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground, of the first fruits of all our trees, year by year into the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons, our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of the herds and our flocks, to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of God. In other words, they brought it into the Lord and said, here, here it is, it's yours, do whatever you want with it. You know what's absent here? A big rope. Unless I don't like what you're doing with it. Unless maybe the pastor teaches a message that I don't like. I get offended somehow. Then it's mine again. I'm going to give you a little secret. If you want God to bless you, don't be an Indian giver. It's not a good thing. Because he'll let you have it back. And then you will suffer the consequences of getting back what you gave to the Lord. And it's never good. You may think you came out on the good end of the stick. As I shared with you before, like the house that was given to Pastor Chuck on the island of Kauai, as soon as the guy took it back, a hurricane wiped it out the next day. To the foundation. God still says, you know what, it's mine. So bring the first fruits of our dough. Notice this. Not dough like as in money. Actual dough. So. But it also included money. Our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil to the priest, to the storerooms of the house of our God, to bring the tithes of our land. Notice, notice what's included here. It is absolutely everything about Jewish life. Everything. It was their fruit. It was their flocks. It was their funds. It was even their house, their land. Say, God, it's all yours. If you lay hold of that principle early in your life, you're going to be well on your way to being very, very content because you will be contented in the things that God gives you and you'll be looking for nothing else. Because I can tell you this, you can look for everything and get it and still be very discontented. You can also have nothing and be very contented. It's all a matter of perspective. Is it God's? And has he been faithful? Or is it yours and you deserve more? I can tell you the latter of those two things won't get you very far with God. And so, for the Levites, they should receive the tithes of all of our farming communities. They brought everything. They said, Lord, it's all yours. You gave it to us in the first place. We just want to be pleasing to you. The next thing, and this is a tough one, and it's interesting that it's mentioned here. It's not ever reversed. We have a few New Testament principles to add to it, but it's a covenant to tithe, covenant to, to bring that tenth. That's all tithe means for those of you who don't know or want to know. Tithe means tenth. We're going to bring a tenth into the storehouse of the Lord. But we'll bring also the dough of our con- and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil. He says, you know what, we're going to bring all these things to you. We want you to make sure that you have them. And it's kind of almost redundant. But now it's really speaking about 
uh, for storing those things up. And you notice the word contribution in here. It's talking about the actual monies. It's things that are provided for or, or come from uh, those things that would be brought in the storehouse. Because one of the things that they did with those is if there was too much bread, they sold the bread. They put the money in the storehouse. There's too much wine, they sold the wine. They put the money in the storehouse. So in essence, the church kind of had a little bit of a business enterprise, if you will, to support itself. And so uh, in this case, the new wine, the oil of the priests at the chambers of the house of God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites who were to receive the tithes from the rural towns, the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites will receive the tithes. The Levites will bring the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel, for the sons of Levi, shall bring a contribution of the grain, the new wine, to the oil, to the chambers. For there are utensils in the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers, and thus we will not neglect the house of our God. So he says, you know what? Let's make sure that we've provided well for everything that God wants to do. I can tell you about how many missionaries are in the world because of house churches. Not very many. I can tell you how many missionaries are in the world because of churches like this one that send missionaries out. Almost all of them. Why is that? Because we can do corporately together much greater things than any one of us could do alone. Uh, If it were up to the Gill family to support even a single missionary full time, that would be a tough task. But for several hundred of us to do that, it's very easy. Matter of fact, we can do many of them and do. And so the things that God wants to accomplish takes money at times. There's no substitute for it. When somebody comes into my office and they say, I don't know how to pay my electrical bill, uh, for me to say be warm and be filled doesn't pay their electrical bill. They go out just as they came in. For someone to have a need, maybe they need to get off the street. Maybe they need fuel in their car to make it to a a job interview. And by the way, these things happen every week here. It's not an unusual thing at all. It happens all the time. Somebody comes in and they, they have a need, and we're able to show them the love of Christ by saying, you know what, here's a gas card. The love of Christ here, let, let us pay that utility bill. The love of Christ here, you know what, we believe that God wants to use you in the mission field. We're going to support you with X number of dollars a month, and we're going to do it consistently. Those types of things are how God's name is made real to people very frequently. I can't tell you how many people have broke down and wept. They don't know the Lord. They don't know you. They don't know this church. They don't know me. They don't know a thing. But all they know is that God's people collectively gave them something that they couldn't get from Uncle Sam. That that God ministered to them through that silly gift card. You know, sometimes I look at those things and, I mean, I've almost been embarrassed at times. It's just like, no, it's okay. You know, God loves you. God didn't, you didn't fall through the cracks from God's perspective. When we need Sunday school curriculum, um, we can't just call people up and go, can you send a Sunday school curriculum? I know you should trust us because we're also Christians. No, they actually want cash. When we go to pay our electric bill at this church, they actually want cash. When we pay our mortgage, they want cash. Ministry isn't free. And so they made a covenant. You know what? We're going to provide for the financial needs of the church. 
And they did that faithfully. It is a joy. And it is the only thing in all of Scripture where there's a promise made to you, if you will test God, he will prove himself faithful to you. Malachi chapter 3 is very clear. It says, test me in this. You bring those things in. Paul would go on and elaborate on this point also as he wrote the second letter to the church at Corinth. And he gives a principle that still is very much the case. And it says there, now this I say to you, know this, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And you talk to any senior saint, somebody who's been around the world a while, that has been faithful in their giving before the Lord, and they will tell you the same story every time. God has always been faithful, and they have never had want. Ever. 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 It's because God said, if you're faithful, my response to your faithfulness is to outgive you. Try and outgive God. You want to test for this week? Try and outgive God. Find somebody that needs some help and help them. And try and outgive God. Each of you must do, Paul would say, has his purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. It's not like, you know, I'm going to make this covenant, but I have to because God won't bless. No, it's not the reason we do it. I love testing God. It's like, God, you're so good. It's amazing what the Lord does with the resources that are gathered in. What's your motivation is really the issue. If you sow sparingly, plan on your increase being very sparing. Now God in providence, in his love for us, universally takes care of a lot of people who probably don't deserve it. But realistically, do any of us deserve it? The answer is no. So I'm going to take God at his word. They made a covenant to make sure that they took care of the financial needs of the church. And they kept it, covenant to tithe. And then finally, a covenant not to neglect the actual house of God. Verse 39, For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil into the chambers. For there are utensils of the sanctuary and the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers. And it says there that they brought them in before the singers, and thus we will not neglect the house of our God. They made this covenant because their relationship with the Lord was in a new place, and it was real. And God, God expects us to, to struggle. I think that he looks at us and he knows that we're going to have uh, times when we're just like, you know, we lack faith. I think all of us do. I know I do. There are days I wake up and I have very little faith. I fall back on my flesh occasionally and I worry and fret and do all those things that all of you do. Praise God I don't do them as often as I used to. And they certainly don't last as long. But I, I do believe that in our relationship with the Lord, that when we really realize what God's doing in our lives and we look at it from his perspective, that one of the sure things that we can, we can do is to watch God work through what he does in the church. I don't even know how many weddings I've done. I have no idea how many funerals I've done. I don't know how many jillions of hours of marriage counseling. I don't know. I just know this. 
that were it not for this house, the house of God, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. And so it's a privilege to take care of the house of God. It's like, Lord, you would let somebody like me have a, have a part in that? To actually speak for you? Because he could speak for himself. He could cause the tree to say whatever he needs to have it say. But he uses yeah, donkeys. Thanks for the reminder. I would have said it myself, but I was... See, my problem is, because I grew up with the King James Bible, I remember the words that are used in the King James Bible. So whenever you think of donkey, I think of the other word, okay? So it's a little stumbling block for me. It's like, because it doesn't quite mean the same in our day and age that it did, you know, in 1632. So, what God's saying to us is, if we're going to have real revival, if we're going to get real in our relationship with the Lord, then ultimately uh, these things that we do ought to become very, very precious to us. This should be a part of our life, just like going to work is a part of our life. And so some takeaways from tonight's study. Choose a marriage partner who loves the Lord. Amen? Some practical application. Choose a marriage partner who loves the Lord. And if you if you have that opportunity, you're not already married, choose a marriage partner who loves the Lord. If there's anything that I could say and do say to young people when they come to me and they want to do premarital counseling, the first question I ask is, do you know Jesus and do you know Jesus? If the answer to that question is no, that's the end of our premarital counseling for me. Why? Because I believe Scripture says what it means and means what it says. Doesn't mean I don't love them, but until both of them are saved, I don't want to put God's stamp of approval on something I already know He doesn't approve of. People, well, it's kind of harsh. No, it's not harsh at all. It's the most loving thing I can do. Because I know what God's Word says. You are in a serious world of hurt if you go against the plain teaching of God's Word. I'm not going to encourage you to do it. A second thing, you'll notice I put down the New Testament scriptures here so you can jot them down where these tie over into the New Testament. Rest in the Lord. That word rest is often translated abide, and it means much more than just kind of kick back in a hammock. It means to set up house in. It means to get comfortable living with. It means to be in the presence of somebody. It's interesting as Connie and I have gotten older, you know, we're pushing 40 years of marriage now. You know, one of the, one of the things that you, you just get so comfortable being with each other. And when you're not with each other, now when I travel, I used to kind of, when I was younger, I kind of liked to travel. Now, frankly, I hate to travel. If Connie can't go with me, it's just like, oh, I'm lost. I wander, around. I wander around my hotel room just like talking to the walls and stuff. It's like, oh, my God, not It's because we abide together. And it's more than just being friends. It's more than just being lovers. It's more than cohabitating in the same space. It's dwelling with. It's being a part of. That's what resting in Jesus is. It's not he's a part of your life. He is your life. 
He is your life. You know, there's a lot of Christians, if you took Jesus out of their life, nothing would change. Isn't that sad? There are a lot of Christians, if you took Jesus out of their life, nothing would change. There would be no substantial difference in the way that they live their life. They rarely pray. Almost never read their Bibles. They seldom go to church. They do nothing for the Lord. They do nothing with the Lord. They don't talk to the Lord. They never mention the Lord to anyone else. Nothing would change. These guys are saying, we're going to abide. We're going to dwell with the Lord. We're going to live where He is. A third thing. Remember that you're redeemed people. These guys were redeemed. They were bought back from the slavery of Babylon. The price was paid for them. They spent their 70 years of hard labor. The price was paid. As Christians, the price was paid at Calvary's cross for you and for me. Jesus paid it all. And so as a redeemed person, that means bought back at a price, by the way. That's what the word redeemed means. As a redeemed person, you're not your own. That's why Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's why we now are different people. You, You can't have somebody else purchase you back and then you live just like they don't exist. A fourth thing, because we're redeemed people, we're supposed to be obedient to the one who redeemed us. It's kind of a part A to the last one. People don't like the word obedience. They don't like the word submission. Frankly, at times, I don't like the word submission. I don't like the word obedient. You know, I look at it and I'm just like, we grumble and complain. We whine about it. It's like, oh, Lord, you're going to make me do that. I have to give up this and I can't do that anymore. Never forget that as a redeemed person, the sole motivation of all that God does and is, is love. So if it's a negative thing, he said, don't do this, it's because he loves you. If it's a positive thing, he said, do do this, it's because he loves you. And everything in between is because he loves you. He loves me. And because we're redeemed, Jesus is Lord. He's the master. He calls the shots. And so if we know what his word says, we do it. Not because he's going to spank us, but because he loves us. And whatever he tells us, he tells us out of a motivation of love. The next thing, give to the ministry out of a cheerful heart. Notice I said the ministry, not Jeff, not even Calvary Chapel, but the ministry to the Lord's work. Give to the ministry. In our case, that's how we do that. We do it here. But out of a cheerful heart, because God loves a cheerful giver. And you're going to reap what you sow. And if you're sowing nothing into the kingdom of God, don't expect anything from God. I can't tell you how many people have come to me. Well, I want to be in ministry. When I talk to people who want to be in ministry, one of the questions they will get from me is are you faithful in your giving? I don't want to know how much. I don't want to know when. I don't want to know what you make. I don't need to see your financial statements. I'll ask you a simple question. Are you faithful in your giving? Why? 
Because if you want to be in the ministry, you're going to derive your income from the ministry. And if you are not faithful to the ministry, why would God ever give you any of it? Why would God entrust anything of his to your care if you are unfaithful what he's already given to you? And so do give. Not because I say so, because it is what God has asked us to do for the support of the ministry. And finally, don't forsake assembling together. Notice these guys all did this together with other believers, doing what you're doing tonight. Doing that at home, home studies are the same thing. Whether it's Sunday or Wednesday or a home study or the couples fellowship or the ladies ministry or men's or whatever, it's so important. And why? Because together we can hold one another accountable. Together we can set loftier goals than you might think of individually or I might think of individually. Together we can accomplish those goals better than we could individually. In other words, we're greater as a whole, as the body of Christ, than we are as individuals with that regard. You're going to have people speak truth into your life. You're going to be able to speak truth into other people's lives. You will be ministered to. You will minister to others when you gather together with other people who love the Lord. God will use you. And the first place this starts, obviously, is in your own home. Because if Jesus isn't Lord, he's not first, he's not the focus in your home, chances are he's really not going to be that anywhere else. Because that's the one private place to where you can kind of do what you want to do. Out in the world, it's harder. Nobody's going to persecute you. If you love the Lord, and your kids love the Lord, your wife, you're not going to get persecuted at home. So live for the Lord. Fellowship with the Lord. Fellowship with each other. Worship the Lord. Study His Word. Walk in His ways. Keep that covenant. Say, God, you know what? I'm going to do this. And then do it. And then watch how God blesses. Take time out of your busy schedule to say, God, what do you think? And when He speaks, do it. You'll be blessed for it. God honors the covenants we make with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this passage, Lord, there's surely little things in each of our lives that could take a tune-up. Lord, I know I need to rest more. Not sleep more, just rest. God, just abide in that peaceful place that is that peace that passes our own human understanding that guards our heart and our mind in you, Jesus. Lord, I know there are times when I get tired, worn out. Lord, I know that that doesn't produce great fellowship. And Lord, I pray for me, Lord, that you'd help me with these things. Pray that you would bless us as a church, bless us as your people. Lord, pour out, rain down upon us. Lord, your goodness. Lord, thank you for what you've already done. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we have a place to meet. Lord, thank you for those that are in the mission field right now because of this church. Lord, thank you for the children's ministry and for the junior high, the high school. Lord, the nursery. Lord, those stacks of CDs back there that are all your goodness poured out to your people. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for loving us. 
Lord, continue to cause us to be serious about our walk with you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.